Hello and welcome to Plot Twists. This is Lane. This is Meg. And today we're reviewing Three Nights with a Scoundrel by Tessa Dare. So this was published in 2010 and is the third in the Stud Club series. So we've previously reviewed the first two books in this series. And this is, I believe, the final one? This is the final book in the Stud Club series, yes. Which is a little surprising because it seems like Clara was being dangled as a... As a possible something. Heroine. But so this does wrap up the main mystery and apparently all of the dangling plot threads don't get resolved. I mean, they got resolved in that cheesy as hell epilogue. Yeah, but she's not like in love with a dude. No. Which, you know, the fact that that is what we expect of resolution because we are obsessed with romance novels is, you know, something. <laughs> something, something, yeah. <laughs> Alrighty, so the book jacket. The bastard son of a nobleman, Julian Bellamy is now polished to perfection, enthralling me ton with wit and charm while clandestinely plotting to ruin the lords, ravish the ladies, and have the last laugh on a society that once spurned him. But after meeting Leo Chatwick, a decent man and founder of an elite gentleman's club, and Lily, Leo's enchanting sister, Julian reconsiders his wild ways. And when Leo's tragic murder demands that Julian hunt for justice, he vows to see the woman he secretly loves married to a man of her own class. Lily, however, has a very different husband in mind. She's loved Julian forever, adores the man beneath the rakish facade, and wants to savor the delicious attraction they share as his wife. His insistence on marrying her off only reinforces her intent to prove that he is the only man for her. Obsessed with catching a killer, Julian sinks back into the gutters of his youth, forcing Lily to reach out with a sweet, reckless passion Julian can't resist. Can her desire for a scoundrel save them both? Or will dangerous secrets threaten more than their tender love? Can I be sassafrassy? I mean, yeah. This jacket is messy AF, but still not as messy as the book. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's also, like, extremely inaccurate. Yeah, that's part of what I meant by messy. Like, it's hard to read. It's, it's hard to read. And it's very inaccurate. Yeah. Julian is the one. The reason that he wants Lily to marry a different man is because he's in love with her and has been for years. Right. So Lily has not been in love with him for years. It's the other way around. No. So I will say she's loved Julian forever is what the jacket says, not has been in love with. I guess. So if you want to split hairs, like, they are close and have been for a long time. But yeah. the, like, sexual romantic element is very new for her, but not for him. Right. Anyway. Well, okay. Before we even get into the random numbers, I have to say, so Lane has called me out in the past for having very spoilery um, summaries. But Lane's is, like, super spoilery so it's all her fault this time it is and i did say when we get to the normal section where we like talk about quality and stuff my first note for us is i will not be able to talk about this without spoiling this spoilers abound there's just yes and no i mean it's pretty normal for us when we're reviewing a later book in a series that the earlier books in the series are spoiled 
Um, but this one does have a central mystery that ties all three books together. And obviously that is re revealed in this book. Mm -hmm. So we're not just spoiling the past books in the sense of talking about who ended up together and how. Like the answer to what was driving the plot in the first two books is answered in this one. And I spoil that in my summary. Yes, she spoils the main mystery in her summary. All that to say, you can probably listen to my summary. And if you really, really want to read the book, um, you might want to stop listening after my summary. <laughs> Basically. That's, I would say my summary spoils the answer, but in a like, very content warning way. Mm -hmm. I'm not giving away details. So if you do want to know what the offense it to me personally is, my summary is not that bad as a spoiler. All right. So uh, our random number for this episode was 22. I will go ahead and start. Sometimes I'm a sucker for pining heroes who just aren't good enough for their disabled heroines, but usually the plot makes sense. Yeah, um, that's one of the things wrong with this book. <laughs> What's your summary, Lane? Things that are not fun. Homophobia. Hate crimes. Telling someone they are being hunted by an unknown assailant when they are not. Those are not fun things. And I use fun very deliberately because that is the adjective we most commonly associate with Tessa Dare specifically. That's true. And with the type of romance novel, the specific subgenre of romance novel that she is one of the best authors within. Right. And so I think the number one problem I have with this book, light on the spoilers, just saying it involves homophobia, hate crimes, lying, central mysteries, whatever. Um, I, like this book was not fun for me. It was incredibly stressful. Yeah. Yeah. I, I will say that, I will say that, the homophobia part is telegraphed pretty early. And that, but that's why it was stressful. Yeah. I was like dreading it so much. I couldn't enjoy anything else. Yeah. I mean, I, I had figured out by probably chapter six, mm -hmm. what had happened. I, I honestly, when's the letter show up? I mean, that's, yeah. Because that's, that's when, when I mm -hmm. figured out the mystery. Yep. Yes. So what are the tropes? Uh, so I think there's not like the trope in the way we're used to. Like this isn't a marriage of convenience or whatever. So I would say one best friend and the sister. Yeah. So it's like brother's best friend. Um, but it actually reminds me of the other one, the novella that she wrote. Um, Where they get stuck in the... She writes the pamphlet. No, the, the like, other one. I mean, there's that one, but then the other novella too, where she, because remember we actually said, oh, this is like a riff on this other novella where her brother died right. in the war. And then. That is the same as the one with the pamphlet. Yes, they are the same. But they are, they are two different novellas. Yes. yes. Um, <laughs> so she's, she's done this, right, where the brother's dead and that finally enables the best friend who feels horribly guilty that he was secretly in love with the best friend sister the whole time you mm. make a move on her yep but reluctantly yes breaking the you so i actually remember your summary because it was so funny you called it breaking the dead bro code 
And I'm like, that's like, this is, that's the trope again, you know? Yes, it's that trope, breaking the dead bro code. <laughs> so, but, which, which leads us to his major trope, which is that he's a pining hero. I mean, yeah. he's been in love with her from book one. And honestly, in book one, I was really excited to read their romance because mm-hmm. I was like, dang, Julian's got it bad for a Lily. Yeah, and he's one of those pining because he thinks he's not good enough for her. Yep. He does have a secret identity. Yeah. It, this is usually one of my favorite tropes. The way it's done here, it's not... I, because I, I think the issue, too, is that he... I feel like there's no real real identity yes right there's not like the true identity and the fake identity it's like he all of his identities are fake yeah so it it's hard to it's hard for me to love it in that sense right he he doesn't have a cover or something he's there's no one in his life he is being honest with correct yeah and We'll get to this when we get into qualities, but, like, I don't really understand his motives for keeping everything that way. Mm -hmm. And I don't just mean, like, it's because he's wounded and, like, I just don't understand making choices out of that kind of pain. Like, literally, I don't know what he was trying to achieve. He's got a lot of moving parts, and I really didn't get why. Yeah. Yeah, I understood some parts of it, but not all. Yeah. Um, So there are one of our favorite tropes, lessons. In this case, it's dance lessons. Dance lessons, yep. And it is just as sexy as you hope and fear. And then she also makes a bargain to get him back into society, which is where the title of the book comes from. Right. So it's three nights with a scoundrel and she makes a deal with him. She says, cause he wants her to go back in society and get married basically. And she's like, okay, I'll go back if you accompany me. So they make a deal that he'll go out with her for three nights. Yes. So the three nights is thin, but in a way I didn't hate. Yeah, I I didn't, I didn't dislike it. I liked it. I liked the fact that it stopped after two nights. Mm -hmm. I I liked it. That part, that part was totally fine. Um, There is a house shopping montage is the wrong word. Like you see them in the third house only, but it's a sex montage while house shopping. And I think that is a trope. It's, it's, it started for us. It started with Lady Sophia's lover, and I think ever since then we just love when they go house hunting together. Yes, and then somehow find sex toys in whatever furniture the people have left. Mm-hmm. So uh, didn't hate it. No, didn't hate that part. This is. So Lily isn't just the sister of the dead guy. She was the twin of the dead guy. Mm-hmm. And this book really plays up the, like, how well twins know each other and how codependent twins are kind of thing. She didn't just lose a brother. She lost a limb. Yeah. And then she... So this happens in so many books, right? She has been taking care of the estate. So she's been taking care of the numbers for Leo since before his death. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, anyway, I, I... I Never hate a woman who does the books. Yep. Uh, But it's also definitely a trope at this point. Yeah, and I think how much I like or dislike it in context depends on 
Is she being taken advantage of? And that's why she's doing it. Is it a real division of labor productive? She's done great things and is recognized for it. Is it Mm -hmm. a, she's recognized for it by the male relative, but he's taking credit. There's so many different ways that trope can play out. And I think the trope in and of itself, I don't mind. I've seen versions of it. I liked and versions of it. I didn't. Uh, And I I think here it was perfectly fine. And part of it is too, since his death, she's been really focused on it. Right, like making sure the estate's ready to turn over and that anything that Leo would have wanted taken care of is taken care of before the cousin inherits. Yeah, so it's, you know, it's partly her grief as well. Yes. Um, There is a pregnant C character in the book. And you Mm -hmm. know this character is pregnant if you've read previous books, so it's not really a spoiler for me to say her labor comes at a pretty inopportune moment textually. (laughs) Of course. I mean, when... When has anyone ever gone into labor on their due date? Well, and also, like, in a romance novel, if she went into labor as mentioned, it's only because it's not when it's supposed to be happening. Right. Because it's too early, or because the husband's not there, or because there's some um, other emergency going on. Yep. A woman, If a woman has a baby and it's not a big deal, uh, in a romance novel, you're generally taken to the bed after the baby has been born. Mm-hmm. Oh, exactly. You don't find out about it until the baby's born. Yes. Then you're fine. There is a really, it's a really fun, really nice proposal in this book. And it's gender swapped. Yes. Which we love. Um, There is a significant letter and Lily really wants to know who wrote it because it's unsigned. And of course, the answer to that question happens by happenstance when she sees a sample of someone's handwriting. Different letter, yes. And then they do, so they do go out and they decide to fake being lower class people. She wants to sit in the pit. So she wants to go, I'm going to spoil this part because I, I don't, I don't think it's major. They want to go, she wants to go to the theater, but mm-hmm. she can't do it in the box. So this is also not a spoiler. Lily is deaf and she can't read their lips if she's so far away in the box. So she's like, look, I need to sit in the pit. And he's like, I can't take a gentle, a, a, a lady into the pit. And she's like, uh, let's then, then take your paramour or whatever, right? <laughs> it's great. And she dresses the part. I loved it. I liked it a lot, actually. It was a really fun sequence, for sure. Um, so, overall quality. As you know, I am usually a Tessa Dare stan. As you will have gathered from my summary and the things we have discussed so far... This book mixed the mark for me hard. (laughs) That said, it has nothing to do really with the main relationship. No, I think the relationship was well-written. I liked them together. I liked them together a lot, actually. If if you're going to have a hero who's not good enough for the heroine, this is how you want to write it, honestly. And uh, as Meg mentioned, Lily's death, and that's obviously very defining in terms of a lot of the choices she has to make. And overall, I think we both think that was handled pretty well. Oh my gosh, I thought it was handled so well. I am probably going to go into it at length later because I did, I did actually fact check this with someone because I was like, I felt like it was handled really well and I wanted to make sure that I wasn't overlooking something super offensive, you know? Yes, so... There are good things about this. I'm about to not talk about them for a while. <laughs> Just have that in mind. Um, 
I have a lot of questions about this text that range from things that really piss me off to things that like just made no sense. From here on out, the spoilers will not be vague. They will be very specific. So Julian's entire thing is he was raised by a deaf mother who signed his name at him. Mm -hmm. And so for a plot, whatever, he doesn't actually know spoken out loud what his name is. Mm -hmm. So he had this sad, tragic upbringing as the illegitimate child of a maid who'd been abused by her nobleman boss and then kicked out on the street, had a kid in the gutter, raised him in the gutter. And so he gets this opportunity where he comes into a little bit of money. He sets up an investment firm, grows it from a little nest egg to a whole fucking lot of money, hires people to work for him, but he tells them they're investing for like clients and it's basically like a trading house. When in reality, it's a private investment firm. And then at one point, because the thing he primarily ends up investing in is textiles, he decides the best way to sell his textiles is to create an alter ego who's the modern day Beau Brummel, use it to start fashion trends, and have sex with aristocratic ladies who are married to men he doesn't like. Yes. And so Why starts, did any of that happen? Yeah, he's okay. Honestly, I I could totally under I couldn't totally understand, but I could enjoy the idea of him saying, "You know what? I need to sell. I don't know. I need to sell pink silk this year, this season. I have a lot of I have a surplus of pink silk, and I need to sell it at a high price." And so he created an alter ego who would go into society and wear pink silk. Like, that is, is very tessadere, and I could get into. But that would have to be the plot, not like an afterthought where I just accept that at some point he had the time, the wherewithal, the knowledge, and was able to convince them mm -hmm. that he was high class. Right. But, that's, it's like that's, but that would have been really fun to yes. use a word that you like in a relationship with Desiderre. And I think I would have liked that. I did not love the part where his, his other motive, his secondary motive was, I'm just, I'm going to get back at these men by having sex with their wives. Yeah. That's not cool. So then second plot element that makes no sense. Not just like, why does Julian Bellamy even exist as this fake persona? He got that small nest egg because he overheard a group of men rig a horse race and they thought he was a deaf employee. He managed to blackmail them each out of a small sum of money that he realizes in hindsight was very small to them and he probably could have gotten away with more. Um, he didn't let them know he was the blackmailer. He didn't let them know he actually could hear or speak. He acted like he was the intermediary and someone else had heard. Well, he's convinced someone's figured him out and they now want him dead mm -hmm. of this blackmail from the past. I, am, I mean, he thinks this because he has evidence that someone does this. Right. So he was told in the last book, he's always had a fear that his past was going to come back to get him. Right. But it wasn't specifically these people will kill him. But he is told in the second book by the guy who was with Leo, the night Leo was murdered, 
that the reason they attacked the two of them is because this guy happened to look like Julian. They were after Julian. And then, spoiler, huge spoiler, this same dude decides to bump him onto the street in this book and hand him a note saying, we know who you are. Stay out of this. Stay out of this. Faith also threatens Lily. Yeah. It's really weird. We cannot figure out, and like, tell me if it's different, but like, why? Why this guy wants to convince Julian he's a marked man? So he he says that he wants to convince Julian he's a marked man to get him to stay out of it. But to me, the easiest way to get Julian to stay out of it would be just to say, yeah, I was with him on the day he died. It was a random thing. Right. Like, we had no idea who these guys were. I'd never seen them before. Even I'll, I overheard them saying, I don't know, I want to murder someone tonight. Or, well, you know, like that sounds really stupid, but you know, whatever. You know what I mean? Convince them that it was totally random, had nothing to do with him. Really sad. Tragedy. Him, there is something worth investigating. They wanted to kill you. Creates an interest in investigating. Yeah, like you, you Exactly. Do you really think he's going to not try to find out people who want to murder him? Yeah. It's weird. It was very weird. Um, So anyway, those are the two big plot things that didn't make sense to me. I probably could have moved on past those and said, oh, this was a fun read. It wasn't my favorite because of these plot inconsistencies, but the relationship was cute. If not for... The fact that Leo and this other guy, whose name is Peter, what they were doing in that night was hooking up, in the alley that night was hooking up. Mm-hmm. And the reason they were beaten and Leo was beaten to death is because these attackers saw gay men and just murdered one of them straight up. Which, one, that's some heavy content warning, trigger warning shit that I would not have chosen to read mm-hmm. if I knew it was in that's where this was going. But two, Lily apparently has always known her brother was interested in men. They never talked about it. Leo obviously wanted to keep it secret from her. But in the book, she's got letters from Leo's lover. And she thinks often about this lover, both in the Mm -hmm. context of, is there someone else out there missing my brother the way I do? But also, like, does this person need to be provided for? And she's very explicitly thinking without gendered terminology. Mm -hmm. As we know, I hate it when plot elements a character knows are blatantly not put into the text in a way that does not read as natural at all just to keep the reader in the dark a little longer yeah and so Meg said so all of these choices were part of what was telegraphing the fact that it was going to end up being a gay hate crime twist yeah as the final mystery I cannot tell you how much I hated it I hated the telegraphing I hated the trying to keep it in the dark and I just like that is the thing I would never choose to read ever in a romance novel like I do not want to read about a gay man living in the closet and being beaten to death Mm -hmm. and having everyone around him get their happily ever after by virtue of his death bringing them together like I thought it's I think it's fucking gross I want nothing to do with it yeah yeah and then the end is like oh gosh isn't that sad that Leo died but that that's basically that's basically the time they spent on it isn't that sad that Leo died and they pulled the Harry Potter where all of the children in the epilogue, but not just theirs, but everyone's kids are named after dead people. Yeah. I just went, okay, fine. JK Rowling. Have fun. 
<laughs> it's it was a lot. It was a lot. It's it's interesting to me because we just read Deception, and mm-hmm. we talked about that one, and there was a gay relationship in that one, and we talked about how for the time that it was written, it felt like groundbreaking and interesting. And today, it it didn't necessarily feel dated, but it didn't feel like it went as far as it could have right. in portraying a happily coupled gay care, gay couple. I mentioned exception be- because now we read this book and there's no, I mean, it's, it's tragic. I don't know if it feels dated or if it just felt like tragedy porn. Yes. That's, that's more it to me. Yeah. I mean, Lily, obviously super open-minded. Of course I knew my brother was gay and didn't think less of him for it. Uh, the guy characters all say slash think very homophobic things for no reason in response yeah. to finding out their dead friend had been gay. Uh, like it was all just not good. Yeah. It, tragedy porn is the right word. It was exploitative. It didn't serve any purpose other than to like be the twist. Right. Right. And again, it was telegraphed from the beginning and uh, it wasn't. So when we, when we got there as readers, it wasn't a surprise to us. Right. So no. it, wasn't, it wasn't even like an interesting twist in that way. The only surprise was, and once again, spoiling everything for free, turns out Leo's lover, Peter, um, was an agent of the crown and a spy and was enacting his own revenge scheme. <laughs> so you would, you would have thought that he would have done a better job of yeah. getting Julian off the scent, but you know. Right, you would, you would think. And like the One thing is, I, I could have loved the plot of a professional spy outmaneuvering a bunch of aristocrats who were trying to solve a, a mystery they had a personal stake in. But because it was a gay hate crime conceit and the spy was bad at his job, it didn't work. Yeah. Let's talk about something that I thought was handled really, really well, which was Lily's deafness. <laughs> so Lily got... Um, she got ill when she was 20, what, like 21? They said 20? she's 28. It was nine years ago. So 19. So 19. Um, so she's 19 years old. She was like the belle of the ball out in society. She had her pick of suitors and then she got ill. We don't know exactly what it was. Maybe measles. One of those diseases where you get a fever, it causes deafness. Mm-hmm. So she survives the fever, but she's now profoundly deaf she can't hear what anyone says but she has done a great job of learning how to lip read and because she was 19 when she lost her hearing she can still speak mm-hmm. um perfectly basically so there's no issue with her her spoken language and leo was a big crutch for her they weren't hiding her deafness socially but he was good at making sure if she couldn't lip read the lips of the person talking to her he would repeat things or turn her toward the person or right and she also chose no longer to go out in society. So after she recovered, she decided she would be the hostess for her brother. Mm-hmm. But that would be the extent of going out in society, which I actually liked. This doesn't have to do with her deafness, but I liked that part of the book where she was like, yes, his friends were my friends. So after he died, she sort of lost her whole social circle as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I thought that part was handled really well, actually. Her her grief and how she was handling it. And 
Anyway, yeah. I, I like that part. Uh, and really, Julian is the only one who's sort of stuck with her after that. You know, everyone yeah, else. I mean, some people who she lost touch with because they were society friends, like Amelia from the first book, have come back. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Julian's the only one of Leo's crew who she has to rely on right now. Yeah, because everyone else, again, she at the time she was like, yeah, Leo's friends are my friends. But now she was like, no, they were just Leo's friends. And I was just... Well, and and also, like, the parameters of the time, she can't invite them over without Leo. Right. Like, she couldn't hold a dinner party for all of these guys, no matter how good of friends they'd been. Right. But anyway, there were also these these little details I thought that were so good. So, for example, they have um, a small hand mirror that hangs at every doorway in the house so that they can get her attention if she's not looking towards them. So this would be any servant or Julian... Um, because, you know, they can't announce themselves mm-hmm. when they come to the to the door. Uh, I, I mean, just this really, it was really interesting. Because today, you know, you can flip the light switch or um, something like that uh, for, for an alarm or just to indicate that someone's here. But obviously you couldn't do that right. when there was no electricity. <laughs> uh, and then the other thing I really liked was Julian's past. So Julian, having been raised by a profoundly deaf mother, so a mother who had been deaf from birth, um, and who she had been raised in a a town where there were quite a few deaf people. And so they actually had their own language. They could speak. Mm -hmm. Um, He says it's like a dialect, which I think is an interesting way of putting it because it was basically their insular language. It's not like, it's not English sign language, right? Mm -hmm. Not British sign language. And so when he introduces Lily to some of his deaf friends, she can't communicate with them because she doesn't know sign language. They can't communicate with her because she can't read their lips. And later she was like, gosh, I'm really embarrassed. And he said, don't worry, they don't think of you as being like them either. So Mm -hmm. I thought it was such an interesting and accurate portrayal of deafness, deaf culture. Mm-hmm. versus hearing culture. So she really is a part of the hearing culture, even if she can't hear. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. I just thought it was really good. So I did fact check this. Part of the reason that I am fascinated with this is that I, I fact check this with my mother, guys. So she is a special educator who's focused on deaf and hard of hearing uh, children. So she actually worked at two state schools for the deaf. She speaks sign language fluently, and I was raised around a lot of um, deaf children, uh, and she had a lot of deaf colleagues. And, and so I actually made her read the book, and she she thought it was great. And it even had a lot of history of sign language and deafness in Great Britain, and she said it was, like, totally accurate. So anyway. Oh, that's awesome. Thought, yeah, thought it was really interesting. You know how she talks about how there was this guy who came up with this language. Yeah. And he uh, encouraged people to hire deaf people and stuff like that. All that was, like, historically accurate. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. And Super not just, like, right? name replaced or something tweaked. or That's really cool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I was I, – I did not love the things that Lane pointed out. But I think I was so focused on the deaf – deafness part and how they were interacting with each other and I I will tell you I 100% teared up when so Julian's explaining that he doesn't actually know his real name he goes by Julian he also goes by James 
And she's like, well, what is your real name? And he said, well, this is my real name. And he signs it to her because of course that's his real name. His mother didn't speak English. She couldn't just be like, yes, his name is Jebediah or whatever. He actually jokes. I don't want it to be Jebediah, you know? All he knows for sure, because the book, his name is recorded somewhere in a parish register, mm-hmm. but his mother was illiterate. Yes. So all she knows is the first letter was J. Yep. Yes. Um, anyway, it's, uh, that part was so nice. I really liked it. And it corresponds a lot with deaf culture as well. Like people's names, they have special call signs or special signs for their names. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just really interesting. It, you should you should look up. There's an article on it. I heard it on um, NPR, National Public Radio, about uh, the deaf community was trying to decide what sign they wanted to choose for President Biden, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, because people, known figures, usually get a special call sign. Anyway. It's also interesting, and this is something I sort of hadn't put together as much in this book, but you talking about it is making me think of it. Like, how much deafness and deaf culture must have been changed with the advent of literacy. Mm-hmm. Like if you can't communicate, like writing and reading is a link between speaking and deaf people. Like that's yes. in the modern day, like that's something we all do. We all speak and read English. And so I don't have any, like I used to work retail and a deaf woman would come in pretty regularly and I'd hand over a pen and a piece of paper mm-hmm. and she'd write out what she needed. Like, so we didn't have problems communicating because we had this language in common. Right. And, you know, just how isolating. And Lily's deafness, one, like you said, she's more a part of speaking culture, but she's also incredibly educated and affluent and can read and yes. write. You know, it obviously would have been very different, not just in terms of not being able to do things as an illiterate person, but like there really isn't an equivalent of a lot of things his mother knew and a lot of the way he was raised because there was no written word to underscore it and bring it together. Yep. Exactly. So, and then, you know, the thing is, yes. And the thing is too, like if she, when she is going to choose a name, she wouldn't, she wouldn't choose a name like Julian, Jeremy, James, whatever that, that doesn't, it, there's no equivalent, you know? Right, like, she doesn't have the mindset of people's names right. are spoken and written. Right. She probably doesn't even know what her own written name is. Exactly. Like, mm-hmm. even if she had one, even if his aunts could tell him what his mother's name is in English, to her, it's the first initial and a symbol. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's just, it's, it's done well here, but I don't think I fully contextualized it until you started talking about this. Yeah. Uh, so I thought that it was handled really well. Uh, like I said, I totally t- teared up in certain parts. And I also thought, I also thought it was just a really great reason for Julian to fall for Lily as well. I mean, yes, she's a wonderful person. She's beautiful. She's kind, etc. But he also understands deafness in a way that a lot of other people didn't mm-hmm. and most other people didn't so yeah I think I do a good job explaining like he didn't fall for her because he was deaf and he didn't see his mother in her but I do think in some ways he understood and saw something in common between them and her loneliness in society that had been imposed by this and like that right. brought them together like I think it right. did a good job the text did a good job. Tessa Dare did a good job explaining he's not like into her because she's deaf. No, that it is a bonding thing for them. Exactly. 
Exactly. I'm not trying to say he was like, oh, she's deaf. I like her more now. Well, I got mommy issues. Let's do some Oedipus. <laughs> that was not it. Uh, it was just more of a, there are just parts where she's like, he, he always makes sure that he's facing me. He always makes sure that his, his face is animated as well. You know, he, he, anyway, I thought it was very, very well done. Well, and we saw hints of this, and I think we mentioned it in the previous episode, where um, there's a scene where he's playing piano, yes. and he plays it so she can feel it, uh-huh. not hear it, um, and that, it turns out, was foreshadowing for a very significant scene in this book. Okay. Do we need to talk about trigger warnings? Because I think we have talked about them. Yeah. I mean, that was pretty much my entire section on quality. Yeah. I, I would say homophobia, misogyny hate crimes, um, I, I would say callous handling of a lot of those issues. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would say, like, this is why we do this. For me personally, too many trigger warnings to recommend this. But, like, mm-hmm. if these aren't things that get under your skin, you might be fine. Yeah. So, sexiness. Look, I did not really like this book. And I was confused enough about who Julian's character was supposed to be that I didn't like him and Lily as much as I wanted to. Like, I liked him as the pining best friend. And I thought she was a really well-developed character. But, like, I didn't get his motivations, where he was coming from, like, to take it any deeper than that for me. Mm -hmm. Um, So sort of let down by him and therefore their relationship. And I know I've said sometimes that when that's the case, when the book is a little bit weaker and something about the couple doesn't really work for me, it doesn't matter how sexy it is, like, I'm not going to find it sexy. I mean, look, if someone wants to fuck me on a piano, I guess that's fine. And by fucking you on a piano, like, it's also, like, vibrator piano? Yeah, the piano is like a vibrator. It was, it was a lot. It was, it was very sexy. He's like, I think I need, I need you to sit right here on the piano. And then he played the keys that would correspond to where she was sitting unclear i didn't this is one of those times where i was like i don't need to know if this is accurate <laughs> i don't i don't need to know if this will work it's great it reminded me of those stupid jokes where you will like women will like sit on the dryer or whatever like yep. that's what it was that was the closest correspondence i have never sat on a piano to see if that would work i didn't know it was an option uh, well, now you, now you do. <laughs> it um, was pretty sexy. It was, and there's super sexy. There was a little bit of like, I'm claiming my virgin bride, but like, he'd been so obsessed with her for so long and was not obsessed with her because she was a virgin that I let it go a little bit. It wasn't like an aristocratic dude looking for his perfect bride. And like, she's not what he was expecting, but she's still a virgin. Like, so whatever. He wouldn't have given a shit if she weren't. So I was okay with him being a little into it. And then there is a carriage scene that is like really hot. Yep. And I think my favorite part about it is that Julian doesn't get off. And then later he's like, why didn't I tell the carriage to take the long way home? I loved it so much because I was like, yes, you need to know that is the first thing you tell the car- the coachman when you get into that carriage, take the long way home. Yeah, that scene, we all know I love carriage sex. It's in the middle of 
a very poorly orchestrated plan on his part to like reveal himself as a ton and use himself as bait and a lot of other weird things that like the surrounding plot and his urgency and why he even needed to leave her did not make any sense to me. So it's sort of like your damn fault, idiot. You but should that's have just followed her into the house. It's not like taking her lap around. Like, why the hell are you even going back? That's what I loved about it, though. Is like he he didn't get it. Didn't get it, and then he goes back to this, as you say, extremely stupid plan. Yeah. And he's like, "Oh wait, there is something better I could be doing right now." Yeah. So I liked it a lot. <laughs> he figures out pretty quickly he's been rolled on. Yes. But the problem is the plot never stops being real dumb, so he never actually figures out that he should stop being. He figures out he needs to stop being so dumb he's not having sex with Lily. He figures that part out. But that's pretty much it. Basically. <laughs> so I guess in summary, we, we had a lot of issues with this book. So for me, I, the issues probably wouldn't stop me from reading it. So I, I don't regret reading it, I think, the same way Lane regrets reading it. But if this is not one that I'm going to reread, and it's not a favorite of mine. I think for me, it's less of a regret, because there were definitely things I liked in this whole series. I will never reread any of them, mm-hmm. knowing that this is, like, the twist. Right. It, like, I find it too upsetting. And so for me, this falls into, like, why we do this podcast. Like, this is exactly my wheelhouse of, I don't want to read that. Mm-hmm. So it's not that it's bad. Tessa Dare's never bad. Her, her writing is-, is not bad. There was, there was narrative momentum. The characters were very interesting and complex. Lily especially, and the way her deafness was handled was perfect. Right, and I'm, like, I, I'm not disagreeing with any of that. Just given the choice, if you told me there is a series... And it's about a group of people who come together when a gay couple is beaten, one of them, to death. And it is treated as a, like, side thing. Do you want to read this series? My answer would have been, nope. Yeah. And so I won't be reading these again. Because I don't want to read that. Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and check us out on social media at Plotris at both Instagram and Goodreads.